The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. All right, I'm finally joined today after a, a yes. month of trying. I think it's our fourth <laughs> attempt. It is. <laughs> By Kayla Waters of the True Crime Exposed podcast. Um, did we got all our technical difficulties work at, worked out and we're, we're rolling it. smoothly now? Yes, we've got it under control. You know, you uh, you tricked me because you have you have one of the nicest looking setups. Like you look very, everything looks very professional with your microphone and your backdrop well, and all that. Um, no idea how to work the equipment at all. No, um, no but- <laughs> idea how to do this. <laughs> Definitely always in the learning stage. So... No, I, um, I'm just just joking. You uh, you can tell from your podcast that you you do know what you're doing. Where do oh, you record? Because it is kind of a cool, at least from what I can see, like a pretty cool space you're working in. So this is actually just my basement, and I have just an extra room in my basement. And then I went and I took all the stuff in the closet out, and I made it into like my recording studio within this room. So the whole room's like my podcast room, but I thought I've always heard a closet is like a, I don't know, easy recording space if you don't have one. And so I just Uh put sound stuff up in here, put my backdrop up in here and I called it good. Yeah, it's perfect. It does. A lot of times, uh, I, people like with some pretty big podcasts are still recording in closets and I'll be talking to them and I can see their clothes like hanging behind them (laughs) and which make great sound buffers. No, totally. And I make my mom, when I go to my mom's house and if we record together, cause you know, she's my co-host, I'll make her, us do it in her closet because it's just like a walk-in closet. We sit in there, uh-huh. all her clothes are our sound buffers and it works out. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. So, right? so, so tell me a little about your, a bit about yourself because Erica's uh creeper ability. It, well, and as I said, these notes are a month old, but it says, that you've recently attended a, a Justin Bieber concert. Um, that was her creepy I, fact of the day. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Yes. Me, my mom, my two, two of my little sisters, and I dragged my husband along, all went to the Justin Bieber concert, which we actually bought tickets for, gosh, more than like two years ago before COVID. And then COVID happened and it got rescheduled and it got rescheduled and all of that fun stuff. So we did go to that probably a couple months ago now, but yeah. I know he got big when I was little. So I still, it's just so funny. I was like, I'm, I'm like fangirling as this like old adult over Justin Bieber, but he was big when I was little. So, yeah. So, so how was the Biebs with good show? It was good. It was good. I, I love him. So it, I don't know why I just loved him when I was little and that's just probably going to stick with me. My 16-year-old daughter loves it. Well, I don't know anymore, but I remember because like he was – so I'm 43, and and I feel like I was not that old, like maybe college when he was like first popular um, or a little mm-hmm. older. Yeah. But then like my, my daughter, when she was like 10 years old, was like in love with Justin Bieber. So like he made like a resurgence. He's oh, kind of like a was. bad boy now, isn't he? I know. Yes, because he's the same age as me. So when he was like little innocent – 
getting famous that were the same age. So that's when I knew him. But then, yes, I feel like a lot of people like that generation below that he like came back and yeah, I don't know. He's much different, but I didn't really follow along with him. But when they said that they were going to go to the concert, I was like, okay, I'm coming. (laughs) That's awesome. So, and you went with your mom. I went with my mom, my two sisters and my husband. Yep. Nice. Uh, and so you have uh, a husband and you have two kids. I have two kids. Yeah. A six year old and a one and a half year old. So very busy. You're a busy person. Oh yeah, absolutely. Two little girls. They're super fun. Super crazy. Oh, they're, uh, wait till they get into high school. As my, my dad told me when I told him that, um, my wife was pregnant with our first son. Um, mm-hmm. he said, he said, well, congratulations. You're in for the best 13 years of your life. And then after that, it's awful. Uh, and it's- <laughs> I am actually so nervous. Yeah, yeah, I am terrified of those teenage years. So I'm taking the- it in while I can. Yeah. So for me, like, it, like the kids are more fun. Like I enjoy, I, I enjoy my teenagers and we have a good relation. We have a lot of fun with mm-hmm. them, but they also, that also brings a whole different like set of problems and concerns when yeah. they get into high school. And, you know, especially like I, I have a junior and a senior right now. Yeah. Uh, my son, son's a junior. My daughter's a, uh, or my son's a senior. My daughter's a junior. Yeah. It makes it, uh, it's, there's never a dull moment. Yeah. It's just a completely different dynamic, but still it's like your anxiety as a parent, I think just changes throughout their life and forms into mm-hmm. different anxieties about how to handle each situation. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole, every, like every year there's a whole different set of problems. Like the other night I had, so my son, the senior, his girlfriend's a year ahead of him. And she's about to leave for college in a few weeks. And they went for a drive. And of course, kids can't get away with any. Well, they find ways around it. But like we have like Life360. We can track every place they were. Love it. I'll have that. Yeah. I would have been in so much trouble when I was in school. Me too. Because we used to, you know, we didn't have phones or anything. I think you're younger than me. Yeah. Um, But when I was in school, there were no cell phones. There was no nothing. So it would just be like. I'm going over to do something with my friend and then you left and then they just didn't know where you were until you yeah. got home. They were and like, was, all right. <laughs> yeah. No, I had uh, my, my, my son left the other day and um, he didn't come back as quickly as I thought he was going to be. And then I just see there like, he's like parked in some like remote parking lot somewhere. And right. I was like, what the mm-hmm. hell are you doing? He's like, uh, oh, well, my girlfriend had a, a picnic blanket. So we're stargazing. And I was stargazing. First of all, what? Yeah. <laughs> and second of all, it was a completely overcast day. I was like, there's not a, cl- a star like, in the sky. Not. Get your ass home right now. <laughs> I love, I love that excuse. It's cloudy. We're just looking at the stars. There's none out there, but we're just watching literally. <laughs> yeah. My wife and I went out on the deck and looked and we're like, there's not a single star in the sky. It's just completely <laughs> cloud covered. Yeah, you cannot get away with things these days. I hope. I mean, yes, kids are smart. They really know how to navigate those like smartphones. I feel like better than us, but Oh yeah. They'll do things like forward the number to another isn't leave their phone somewhere. They've tried it. Yes. All. Yeah, they're crazy. But their dad is a is a is an investigator and has done all the shit they think that they're coming up with on their own. Oh, already. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> they like forget that their parents were their age once. So Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know much else about you other than, you know, the, the the two kids, you went to Crime Con and you went to a Justin Bieber concert. Like, what, yeah. do you work out? Do you work outside the home other than the podcast? 
Um, so I don't work outside the home, but I do do a full-time job. I do it in cosmetology. So actually completely separate and opposite of true crime, but I do that from my home as well. Just with my two kids, it's easier. So I do work that full-time. And then it was about a year ago. I, we just had our one year in July of doing this podcast Mm -hmm. that, you know, so we started about one year ago and I just kind of been going with it since. Yeah. You know, you, you totally could blend those together. There's the, um, she's a huge YouTuber, Bailey something. Yeah. Bailey Sarian, who does her makeup and her true crime. Mm -hmm. And then like Ash Kell off of morbid. She what she did hair when she was getting into podcasting and all of that stuff. So it does work. Most of my clients, I do a lot of lashes. I know it sounds funny to people, but like lash extension. So they just lay there and most of my clients just listen to true crime. So I've got a million true crime podcasts. And then through the years, as I was doing it, I was just like, I think I can do this because I'm really passionate about it. I want to do this. So it honestly kind of helped put me into it. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect opportunity for like a YouTube channel where your, your client lays down and you tell them a true crime story while you're pasting eyelashes onto them. So funny. Cause I've actually thought of that, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's so many things, so many things to do. Yeah. Well, and there's so many true crime podcasts out there. It's like, you got to find a, a niche some, somewhere yeah. and it's, that could be it. I'm going to, my co-host Absolutely. is going to be this unsuspecting person who just my... wants their eyelashes longer. <laughs> yep. I've totally thought of that. They all love it. So it would be, it would really work out. Nice. So do you have like a, like a little, like, like they're not laying on your couch, right? Do you have like a little space no. where you then do all this stuff? Yes. Yeah. So just like opposite of my podcast room, I have a separate room that's for cosmetology. And yeah, there's like a bed and all of, you know, that stuff that goes with it. So yeah, I work that full time. And then I feel like I do the podcast probably just as much. I'm sure you know that oh, yeah. a lot of work goes into it. So I kind of just bounce between these two rooms and live my life down here. You mean the 45 minute episode that you put out each week that didn't take just 45 minutes, <laughs> right? People do <laughs> not, cannot wrap their minds around that. Uh, I had people one everyone. person. Yeah. I had one person I was on an interview with and he, he doesn't do a true crime show. He just does like an interview show. And he had told me like, I think you need to put out an episode every day. And I was like, that mm-hmm. is absolutely impossible i can't do that so I, yeah i was I, it's the same thing like on, on truth and justice people are like you know we'd be able to get through these cases faster if you just did like daily episodes i'm like it takes me 40 hours to put together one of these episodes that's hey, exactly what i was gonna say it's like a 40 hour week to do one episode so mm-hmm. i don't think daily is going to work out unless they want 10 minutes of something right. five minutes maybe yeah like i i would have the only way i could do it is if i did like a YouTube, like, like some sort of a live stream where I don't have to have a script or research and I'm just talking to people. Yeah. And I thought about doing like kind of taking my podcast into YouTube in a way that I'm able to just like hop on and just like tell short versions of the things Mm -hmm. I've covered and then send them, you know, to the podcast for extra details and all of that stuff. And so like in that I could, cause I've already done that research all the way up to this point, but doing new episodes every day. Absolutely not. (laughs) So who edits your podcast? I do. I literally do everything right now because like I said, just hopped into it a year ago. Uh 
like blind almost. I did a ton of research for the year prior before that, but I really didn't know anything. So I research and write and post and edit it. So that's just everything falls to me. My mom was kind enough to be my co-host because I just wanted someone to kind of be able to talk back and forth with. She is basically who got me into all this stuff. So I thought she'd be a perfect person for it. And then I actually have my daughter do like a little palate cleanser at the end because I always need a little break right after a crime thing. So she just hops on with her cute little voice, gives a fun fact, and then like ends out the episode. So those two help me. But besides that, I pretty much do all of the other things, all the fun stuff. I've I've listened to a couple of episodes. I love I love your daughter. Charlie's her name, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's adorable. She comes on and just, she's really sweet. Yeah, just tells you some <laughs> little fun fact. Just to it's it's hard to have nightmares after hearing that at the end of the episode. Right. It's like a good little breather from it, and I feel like she likes being involved, especially where I do it so much. Sometimes I feel guilty, but then she's involved and. She's really excited. We actually just, um, I think it was in June we went maybe. Yeah. In June we went and we, um, I actually, we were able to win like the best local podcast for the local paper here, the post register here. And so Charlie was actually like very excited because she felt like she was a part of it. It was like her podcast that won the best local podcast. And so it was just, it's fun to have her involved, but like, obviously not too much because she can't actually know what's really going on in these cases, but yeah, that's awesome. So where, where are you, where are you located? So I'm actually in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Okay. So, I mean, I say small town, it's growing like crazy. I think it's like one of the top places in the United States that's been like just blowing up. So Mm -hmm. I'd like it to stay a small town, but it's getting bigger. That's a cool area. So in the case we're going to talk about today is from Idaho Falls. So that makes, that makes sense. Um, yes. I'm a little bit familiar with it. I wonder if you, it was near there. It wasn't Idaho Falls, but it's close to, but there's a project that I've been working on for years that maybe someday I'll do. Um, did you ever hear the story of, of uh, Forrest Bird? He's the guy that like created the respirators and died. And then his wife died right after in a plane crash. No, I haven't. Probably. Perfect. That means it'll be a new story when I tell it. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, yeah, it's kind of a crazy story, but I was, I was doing some research about the Idaho Falls area because of that. And it seems like a cool place. And it's like that stories from around here. Yeah. How yeah. cool you should do it. Mm-hmm. That'd be awesome. You'd be a good excuse to be, I, I like to go out to the, so I, I go to Northwest Montana often for just, we went there for vacation. Really pretty. Some, yeah. Hunting and camping out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I love the area. Uh, so, t- so tell me about your mom. Your mom is is a nurse practitioner. How how did the conversation go? Where you decided you wanted to do a podcast with her? Well, I don't think she, that she thought I was completely serious because, yes, yeah, she's a nurse practitioner and she does a lot of things. So she mainly works in the NICU with little, you know, little premature babies. My stepdad's actually a neonatologist. So they work in the NICU together. They run three hospitals down in Ogden, Utah, the NICU, not three hospitals, three NICUs in three Mm -hmm. hospitals down there. And so she is crazy busy with that. But then she also with her nurse practitioner for a hobby because she just likes to be busy. She also does like, um, 
what is that called? Like Botox and filler and stuff. So I, oh, okay. I'm, I'm trying to think. I, I've lost the word for what exactly the person who does that is. Anyway, she does that in her own office on the side. So she was already doing both of those things. And I was just like, hey, I've been thinking about doing a podcast. I've been thinking about it a ton. Do you want to do it with me? And she was like, sure. And then I don't think she thought I would because I actually mm-hmm. did seriously work on it for a year because I was so stressed out about it. And it's funny because I made her record the first episode I did, which is on the case we're going to talk about today. I made her record that episode with me like 10 times. Finally, she got to a point where she was like, I'm not recording this episode again. I'm not listening to this story again. Like I can't do it. <laughs> like, And so I was like, okay. And it's funny because I listen back now and I still talked so slow in it. Like I still cringe at myself. So it's funny because I'm like, gosh, I recorded that 10 times to make it perfect, but it still wasn't perfect. And that's all right. I like how it turned out, but she just didn't think I was serious. I, I had an interview actually with the person on that episode and I did it a whole year before I launched the podcast. And so when it finally came, yeah. And I just, when it finally came down to it, she was like, okay, I guess we are doing this. So she just hops on whenever she can. And if I have to do one without her, I do. She's in most all of them, but you know, I just cater to her schedule. Sure. And you guys, you guys started in July of last year. So you've been just doing it for just over a year. Uh, and you have new episodes come out every Wednesday, every Wednesday. Yeah. Now, is it, is it a, is every episode a different case that you're talking about? Usually a lot of times I have a really hard time not making episodes like two or three hours. So then they are multiple Mm -hmm. parts because I just cannot stop myself from putting in all the details that I want in there. So yes, every week is a new case unless I'm obviously doing like a two to four part series. And then sometimes that's what it is. But yeah, for the most part, it's doing like a new case every, every week. Okay, well, let's and, and you you really have a, a focus on victim advocacy. Uh, yeah, it's kind of the angle you take on it. Yeah, so as often as I can, I try to interview with family members and or people involved in the crime or experts or whoever I can kind of get to work with me. I'm pretty new into it, so I didn't think a ton of people would be like, "Yeah, let's do this," but they actually are very willing. So I've. I've talked to quite a few people. I started out with my first episode having an interview. And then from there, I just interviewed where I could. So I've worked with a lot of people's families. I've worked with a few different parents of victims, siblings of victims. Um, I've worked with the wife of a victim, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so I I really try to make the stories like victim centered because that's what I care about. It's the whole reason I got into it. Like I Obviously, I'm doing this because I have a fascination with true crime, but it's a fast fascination, not in a sense that I'm like, wow, this is so cool or like this entertains me per se. It's really because I stay awake at night thinking of these people like I can never Mm -hmm. stop thinking of them once I've learned about their story. And it like makes me sick sometimes just to think of like what they went through. And so I thought I, I want to talk about them. And like, make sure that people remember them and who they are. Right. And so I thought a great way to do that is to talk with people who knew them, because what better way can I get a sense of 
who they really were. And I, I have noticed that through my episodes where I am able to talk with people, family members and people who knew them. I feel like even closer to those cases because I feel like I do know them on a certain level. And I think Mm -hmm. it brings that to the listeners. So yeah, a big thing for me is the victim advocacy. As we get more into it, I want to do, you know, more things with that. Just that's kind of my main goal with the whole podcast is to like make a difference where I can. I mean, I'm only one person, but I feel like if multiple people are trying to make a difference, you're going to make a difference. And I do do a lot of episodes with, unfortunately, not everyone loves listening to them, but they kind of have to be talked about is like child abuse victims and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, because that's like a huge, that's probably what I care about the most. I care about everything, but like those kids are like a huge focus for me. So not everyone loves those, but I do feel like those cases don't get talked about often. So I try to go on there and talk about them just because like, how are we going to remember those kids if we never talk about them? Sure. And and do you find, I was, it's funny. I was just yesterday interviewing another podcaster and we were talking about, you know, she was shocked at how many people were willing to talk to her about cases because, you know, she was a new podcaster. Nobody knew who she was. Do you find that people are, are, are like surprisingly willing to talk to you about their cases? Yeah, they are really willing. And, and I was shocked about that from the get go, even with my first episode being able to get an interview for that. I, you know, it's like, I was no one, I was doing nothing at that point. And then even still like people are really open. I have an interview with a guy today who's the husband of the victim we're going to be talking about. And yeah, they're just, they want to share their story. I mean, if that's what they, there's some families out there that don't, you know, that want to keep things more private and whatnot. But for the most part, I've realized they really do they just want their story out there. They want help in seeking justice, especially if their case isn't solved. A lot of right. times in the solved cases, they do want to like grieve quietly. And I totally mm-hmm. respect that if that's what they want. Um, but in those unsolved cases, I feel like they're really usually out there doing their own work. So wherever they can get help, they'll take it. Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, people that think that a lot of true crime podcasting is just for entertainment, like what you're doing and the in the willing, especially in those cold cases, people being willing to be involved in it just speaks to the value in what you're doing, because that because what they really right. want is particularly in cold cases or unsolved cases is they just want someone to talk about it and get people talking about it and get word out to try to help move the case forward. And I think that's one one thing that true crime podcasts have been so amazing at at doing is bringing in that outside help just by telling the stories. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because if no one's talking about it, I mean, and it's sad to say, but there's, then there's a lot of the times no pressure on law enforcement or whoever's taking it has that case to go ahead and take it seriously. But once they start getting a lot of that public pressure, I feel like they really kind of step up their game and we've seen that like time and time again in different oh, cases sure. I get exposure. Yeah. I mean, there's been a ton that have been like directly solved by the involvement of podcasts, but then there's been so many that yeah. were solved be- just because there was a podcast that was talking about it and got more. And then all of a sudden somebody's like, Hey, I know that case. And I knew that guy and you know, something pops yeah. because of it. Um, 
I want to talk about this case that was the the first episode of True Crime Exposed. Um, and it was, yeah. it sounds like it was the case that kind of got you really interested in true crime to begin with. And that's the the murder of Angie Dodge, which involved yeah. uh, uh, an exoneration Probably. because of genetic genealogy. Um, yeah. And so, so it's go like, ahead and share that story. Yeah. When she asked me what I wanted to talk about, I thought that'd be perfect because A, I'm it's a very important case to talk about. It has all these elements that are so important. And it's also very similar to the case you're very involved with, obviously, the West Memphis mm-hmm. Three case. Right. I watched your um I watched your presentation at CrimeCon, the Forgotten West Memphis Three. Oh. And yeah. <laughs> I actually loved that. Um, and kind of how you I even like the idea of how you named it the forgotten West Memphis three, because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times in wrongful conviction cases, the focus does move from the victim to the person wrongfully convicted, which there needs to be a focus on both. But a lot of times we forget about the person, like the whole reason this story is even going on. So I loved that. And one of my clients who I work with on the cosmetology side of things, she was actually best friends with Angie and um, a, you know, she kind of mentioned that, that just, they feel just through a lot of these things, they feel like they're forgotten. And so, you know, I, I really wanted to talk about Angie, really talk about her and then also talk about the wrongful conviction and all of those elements. So yeah, Angie, I, I got into the case when I first watched a Dateline episode on this case way back when I was in high school. And then I was naive, obviously. And so I, watched it and they didn't know yet Chris Tapp, who was the man who was wrongfully convicted, Christopher Tapp, he was still in prison when Keith Morrison Mm -hmm. interviews with him. And I thought to myself at that time, is he like, did he do it or did he not? And I literally had the thought, you're not going to confess if you're not guilty. And Mm -hmm. that's the mindset of a lot of people. I was like 16 years old. So Of course, I just didn't have the knowledge to know that that's very much not true. But then when I started getting into this, that's always the case that really stuck with me. And I always wondered, did he do that? Did he not? If he didn't do it, who did it? Mm -hmm. And so I I had always followed the case. I was working at a barbershop, actually, when they were starting to like actually solve it. And when they thought they knew who did it, which it wasn't public yet, but we were cutting a police officer's hair. And he was like, we're going to Boise to go and find this guy who we think is the person who actually killed Angie Dodge. And my coworker was actually cutting his hair. And I looked at him like, "Hmm, excuse me, what? Like, I've been following (laughs) this case. Like, you can't tell me that when it's not in the news. Like, I need to know more information. He like, wouldn't tell me anything. So I actually waited for a few weeks until it actually came out what was all going on. And yeah, it's really, it's a really sad case because Angie was killed in 1996 in her, mm-hmm. in her own home. She was living in an upstairs apartment of like a house. So mm-hmm. there's a side door and it goes up to her apartment and her coworkers couldn't get a hold of her the next day. They went there, that door's open kind of. So they just go in, they find her And she's there in the home. And a few months later, her, one of her best friends who was named Ben Hobbs, he actually had gone down to Nevada after like he did her funeral. He carried flowers at her funeral, all this stuff. And then he goes to Nevada 
And he actually commits a rape at knife point, Mm -hmm. which is like shocking to me because like your one of your best friends was just raped and murdered and she was stabbed, you know, so it it was also at knife point and she was stabbed and her, her, her throat was cut is how she ultimately died. And so like, me like that's very odd that you would then go do that to somebody else he didn't kill the person that he raped but this is obviously like a violent assault and so Mm -hmm. police officers did look at it and think that's like that connects that's why would he do that and so from there is how they end up coming to christopher tap because christopher tap and another man named jeremy sargis they were friends with um ben hobbs And Mm -hmm. so they interview Ben Hobbs and he's like, I had nothing to do with Angie's murder. Like, and same with Jeremy Sargis, but Christopher Tapp hit the police officer. One of them who was interviewing him was actually his, um, what is that called at school? Your resource officer. So Christopher Tapp knew him. This is Jared Furman. He ended up being the mayor here in Idaho Falls. And so he was this resource officer and Chris just trusted him. And from there, things obviously went very downhill. Yeah. And the, so, it, yeah, and he ultimately ends up confessing, but it, it, is this right from what I'm re- reading? It was after a hundred hours of interrogation. He confessed. Yes. Yes. He That's went insane. down. Yeah. He was 18 or 19 when they started questioning him. He was convicted at like age 20, but so he's a young kid, I think just freshly out of school. And he went down to the station over a course of nine days. Even in those nine days, he was polygraphed six different times. Mm-hmm. And that was a big factor into his wrongful conviction because what people don't realize is like you can be very manipulated. Your mind can be very manipulated, especially if your IQ is lower. And mm-hmm. his was a little lower. And so he just wasn't able to see what they were doing. And if you watch the the interrogation tapes, I mean, they'll interview him and he'll say something that is true for him. Like I wasn't there, but then they'll tell him, oh, well, it shows your line on the polygraph. Mm-hmm. So then he's like, well, was I there? And yeah. then if he said something that they fed to him, they would tell him, oh, that that showed you were being truthful. So truly it's messing with his mind because he's confused. Like, why is it showing truthful when I say that I was there? Why is it showing I'm lying when it says I'm not there? And even at one point he ends up saying, if I was there, I would remember, wouldn't I? And it's yeah. like, yes. And they're lying would. to him, right? About, about yeah. the polygraph. They're lying to him about the polygraph. And like, for Mm -hmm. me, polygraphs are just, I think they're just like junk. In my opinion, I actually took a polygraph once and it was so, I passed it, but, and I took it because I was actually wanting to work at the jail many years ago. It, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. I've kind of always dabbled in this world and I thought, oh, I'd love to work at the jail and whatnot. So I, you have to take a polygraph and I passed it. But afterwards, I just thought it was so strange because it it really seemed just like up to the guy. Like it was his mm-hmm. perception. Like he'd ask me something after like, oh, like 
your heart rate went up right here a little, like, why was that? And then I'd like tell him like, Oh, that, if that was an uncomfortable question, cause there were some mm-hmm. odd questions in there and he'd just be like, all right. <laughs> like it was really his yeah. choice, his personal opinion on if I passed mm-hmm. or not. So since then I've thought polygraphs are just junk. And then along with this case, yeah, they were just lying to him. It wasn't showing that he was telling the truth or lying when he's saying these different things. Right. And so after, after a hundred hours of that over, you said nine days, he ends up, ends up confessing, which is crazy because, you know, the techniques they use, like the re-technique and stuff like that, they're like, even in those books, they say, you know, like the, you know, the sweet spot for a confession is in the fourth hour for some reason, like psychologically, if you use this method of breaking uh down, like nowhere in that book does it says, keep harassing him and lying to him for nine days over a hundred hours. And that's when you're going to get a true confession. Like what a bunch of nonsense. Like, they, they had to know. And he, anyway, so he gets, he gets yeah, convicted. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And he, but he was sentenced to, to like aiding and abetting, right? No. So he actually, he, he said that his two friends were there. The ones who got roped into this with him. So uh-huh. he's told, so he's, he ends up confessing because they say, look, if you tell us the truth, like we're going to give you a deal. If not, you're going to get the death penalty. So he's right. scared. And so he's like, okay, I, I'm going to say what they want me to say. He wants the deal. And so he's just bringing in different names. And so he says that he was there, but it was his friend, Jeremy Sargis, the other man who had been questioned and didn't like never, like never gave in. He says, Mm -hmm. Jeremy Sargis was the one who raped her. And then he had also said Ben Hobbs was there. Well, they have DNA from Angie's case. So Ben Hobbs, he doesn't match the DNA. They rule him out. But when Chris confesses and says that Jeremy Sargis is the one who raped and killed her and that he was there, he ends up saying like he was there with Jeremy and he like cut her once, but that's it. Well, Mm -hmm. they arrest Chris and Jeremy Jeremy never confesses. So his thing ends up getting dropped. Chris, they end up testing the DNA. The DNA doesn't match any of them. So it's not Mm -hmm. Jeremy's. It's not Ben's. It's not Chris's. But when the DNA doesn't match, they're able to go back to Chris and they say, hey, I do us. We said you'd only get like a deal if you told us who was there. You obviously lied because the DNA didn't match Jeremy. And you you said that he raped her. So now the deal's off the table. And you can actually mm-hmm. see Chris panic because he says, I'm just saying like what you want me to say. So can I'll take right. it all back. I didn't do it. Like, I, like, I don't know what you want me to say. And mm-hmm. so he actually gets convicted of rape and murder and he gets sentenced to, oh, I did. I can't think of it right off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure he got sentenced to life in prison for it or, or each of them were enough to keep him in there for a very long time. And it's not for 20 years before he, yeah, I think it was like out. life with a minimum of 30 years or something. Yeah. 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 And, and, and so after he spends 10 years in prison, the Idaho innocence project took a look at his case and they mm-hmm. determined that it was a, it was a false confession um, uh, and then they, the, the convictions thrown out what they, they, at one point they lessened his, his sentence from 30 years to 20, but he'd already so, done and, 20. 
Yeah, that yeah, it's crazy because that's when he gets let out, but he's still let out on the murder charge. So they wouldn't admit that he didn't do the murder. That's he was let out mm-hmm. as a convicted murderer still. They were they only let him out after that 20 years. They dropped his sentence because they said since his the innocence project gets involved, even Angie's mom, she's the one who really started the ball rolling because mm-hmm. she ended up watching the interrogation tapes and she thought this kid didn't do it. So right. I need to find out what happened. And that was after 13 years that she really got involved after 13 years of thinking he killed her daughter, but they end up dropping the rape charge because I'm sure the everyone knew he didn't do it, but they didn't want to admit that they got it wrong. So mm-hmm. they're like, okay, your DNA didn't match. So we'll drop the rape charge, but you're still convicted on murder, but you can get out. And so he took that because he wanted out. So he gets out, but he said it was really hard because he's who I interviewed in that first episode of my podcast. And yeah, he says it was way hard coming out of jail at 20 years as a convicted murderer. He couldn't Mm -hmm. get jobs really anywhere. Like there are only few places that will hire a convicted murderer, even though pretty much at this point, the whole town and everyone knows he didn't do it. And he doesn't get exonerated until they actually find the other person. So it's like, which it's crazy to me because it's like, you just, they just wanted to save face so bad that it's like, you couldn't say he didn't do it. You're going to let him out, but you're still going to try to like save yourself and say like, you're, you still did the murder though. And it's so, it's so much like the West Memphis three case. Cause it's exactly, you got, you got a kid that, that they just keep twisting a story to name other people. And yeah. then they get let out, but they're still convicted murders. And then right now, what's funny is, you know, again, like right now we're in this battle with the courts yeah. in that case, trying to test evidence. I've so been that watching we can pr- that. Yeah. So we can prove who did it. So number one, they can be brought to justice and also, so the other three can be exonerated. And in Arkansas, they're fighting this. And, and, and for the, it's funny that this case comes up because, you know, I mean, I've, every state's different. Arkansas is different. But when the, when the judge says, well, you don't have a right to DNA testing or anything new because you're not in prison anymore. What I've said in the, this is another example of it is that's ridiculous. It happens all the time, all over the country. And that's what happened here. They finally, through genetic genealogy, they find out who actually committed the murders years after uh, Chris was already, already out of prison. And then he's exonerated even when he's off, but they, there's people, the the people that believe the West Memphis are guilty that are always, you know, hooping and hollering over this case are just, they yeah. act like it's the most, like, how dare you think that you could be exonerated after you're out of prison? Like, it happens all the fucking time. It happens in this case <laughs> it right literally, here. It literally happens all the time because yeah. so many people are wrongfully convicted. And then I yeah. think people just blindly think, well, the law enforcement, they're going to do it right. They And I... I am, I like the police and stuff like when they're doing the good work, but when they're not, they're not. So call it out. And it's so frustrating. It, it made me so mad when he was out, but not exonerated because it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, he didn't do it. And like, like they just blindly believe, you know what? They're going to like, we believe the law enforcement, like they've got it right. And they don't, surely they'll keep trying to find out who did it. Yeah. And we're dealing with this no. all Ed Eights. Ed Eights was one of the cases I worked with. We got out of prison um, after 20 years, very similar to this. But we he was actually yeah. got out through parole b- because of innocence. 
um, where he may, you know, basically we, we, we had to present the parole board with the case to show like this guy's innocent. That's why he won't tell you he's remorseful because he didn't do it. And they let him out, but yeah. he's still convicted. And we're waiting on some testing and some other stuff in his case to try to get him exonerated. The West Memphis three cases well, like that. Yeah. It's sad for them too, because what are they supposed to do? Like when you let them out, sure. But they've been in prison for 20 years and then mm-hmm. you you let them out as a convicted murderer, like where do they go with their life from there? Right. It's hard. Like Ed, our season two case on truth and justice, it was a, it's a unique story because for 20 years in prison, his wife never divorced him and stayed in contact. And and like, she was there waiting with open arms when he came out of prison with his kids. And, and so he's had an amazing support network, but that's not super common. Uh, In fact, it's quite rare for someone to come out and have a support system like that available to them. Um, and I yeah. think that's a, that's a good spot without giving too much of this uh, case away because I want people to go listen to it. So uh, her name is Kayla Waters. The podcast is called True Crime Exposed. The case that we're talking about right now, which is fascinating and it includes an interview with the man that was wrongfully convicted of it, is the very first episode. And there's over 50 to choose from after that. They release every Wednesday. Check it out. Could be your next big true crime binge. And Kayla, thanks so much for, for joining. Of course. I appreciate it. Yes. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.